hands together for Tony Ronaldo. I love that, Tony, because um, the, the, the second one had more, you know, so I think there it is. There's, there's Brad Pitt, Chris Hensworth and Tony Ronaldo. How, how does that sound to you? <laughs> uh, Tony, when someone, if someone was to bump into you on a train and say, uh, what do you do uh, with yourself? How would you respond to that question? So I'm in the business of turning enemies of trees into friends of trees. <laughs> and that, that came about after a long process. I, I tackled this with knowledge on botany, with funding, trying to find a technical solution to all these problems. When I realised that it was people's actions, people's behaviour that had reduced what had been a biodiverse forest to its knees, that's where the battlefield is. And so I'm, I'm in the business of regreening mindscapes. And if I win that battle, because God's provided in many of these places, the, the forest is there but hidden. If I win that battle up there, the rest is relatively easy. Um, if we backed up for a moment, Tony, and uh, said the places like um, Niger uh, is a long, long, long way from home. Um, where did you um, grow up? What was uh, life like as a, as a young kid? Where were you? So I, I grew up in the most beautiful part of Australia. I agree. <laughs> uh, Myrtleford, northeast Victoria. Yeah. And the bush came almost to our front yard. It was just across the street from our front yard. There were a group of boys in our street. That was our playground. And we played cowboys and Indians. We climbed the trees. We swam and fished in the Ovens River. So we, we had a great time as kids. <laughs> I know that a little bit too. So that's great, Tony. Um, tell us, as a, as a young child though, you said that uh, you loved growing things but you also used to get angry as a child. Tell us about that. Certainly. So that bushland that I loved so much was being bulldozed. And steep hills would be left cleared for years on end. Even though as a child I didn't understand ecology, there was something very, very wrong with that picture. Erosion, loss of wildlife and, and so on. The streams that we fished in, drank from, uh, uh, swam in, were being poisoned with agricultural chemicals. And the main crop at that time was tobacco. I was also very curious. I used to watch the news. I used to read as much as I could about things overseas. And it struck me as, as more than just odd that we had the, the luxury of growing tobacco while children just like me, who through no fault of their own, happened to be born elsewhere, th those children were going to bed hungry. And, mm. and so I was angry, angry at the injustice, angry at... Um, Short-term thinking, it's not, not that we're not to use God's creation, but the way my, the adults in my world were using it was very, very destructive. Mm. Um, when you prayed a prayer, I think it's written in, in your book, but you, you described a time in which you said, God, please use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. How did you go about discovering that? So d discovering what, what I would do. Yeah, yeah. So that, that prayer as a child, God, I want to make a difference. Mm. Where did that lead to from there? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I guess the third big influence, uh, the, there was the what was happening in the environment, yep. uh, what was happening 
with starvation on a global level. But the third big influence on my life was my mum's strong faith. And that gave me a framework for living. There are more important things to life than financial security. We are our brother's keeper. We've got a duty of care for those less fortunate than ourselves. And we're to be stewards of God's creation. Now, at that age, I didn't really know how to go about it. But what I've learned is go as far as you can see, even if it's just one step. And when you get to that next point, you'll always be able to see further. So I was the um, gardener in our family. I love growing things. And I had this concern about global hunger. I studied agriculture. However, when I got there, I was just overwhelmed with self-doubts. Who do you think you are? What does the boy from Myrtleford think he can do on a world scale? So this was really, really crushing. But it was also at that time that I got into the habit of reading God's word. And no matter where I read each morning, I'd come back to Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand. And that was just such a relief. I didn't, still didn't know the what's or the where's or the how's of my future. But from that verse, I knew God did. And if I could just muster up enough faith to leave the future in God's hands and deal with the next step that he would give me, then the rest would fall into place. That's marvellous. Um, so you studied agriculture. Then you went to Bible College in New Zealand and then you put your hand up, or both you and Liz did, and said, we'll work with this group called SIM, Southern Inland Mission. Uh, back, back then, Sudan Interior Sud- Mission. Sudan Interior Mission. I wondered that when I first... And, um, and then they said, okay, you can go to a place called Niger. Um, and you're 24 years old, I think, at the time. You've just had a baby, so we're thinking Johnny and Steph right here. And you're about to go and live in huts right? How does the family feel about that, just for a moment there? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the grandmas and the, those things. Um, but you did. And you journeyed over there. What was your first reaction when they said, go to Niger? So, if, first of all, I had this fascination with Africa from childhood. So, going to Africa wasn't an issue. But when we applied to join SIM, I, I wrote in one of the answers to the questions, interested in dry land agriculture. (laughs) Be careful what you write because that will seal your fate. And um, the mission immediately said, wonderful, we've had this long-standing vacancy in Niger, you're to go to Niger. And I I started to think, and I was very impatient, maybe I still am impatient, (laughs) don't talk to Liz after the meeting, (laughs) very impatient, I realised, well, not only would I have to learn a local language, I'd have to learn French, and I'll be an old man before we ever get to to, to do anything. So I I said, can't you send us to Nigeria, it's just across the border and they're English speaking, I only have to learn one language. And they got back to us and they really were desperate to fill that position and they said would would you reconsider and so we we prayed and had peace about it we said yes during our time in Niger there were so many times I think God why did you send me to such a forsaken place nothing works the people are stubborn everything's doubly hard in hindsight because what we did and you saw a glimpse of that on the film because what we did worked in hindsight it was the best possible place to be because it worked on the edge of the Sahara Desert. It's an inspiration to countries all around the world. Um, by the way, here's the 
the Niger right there. Did you bump into that pin when you were there, just at the edge of the... Because apparently there's a pin right in the middle of that, that sort of country. It, um, it, it was obscured by dust storms. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, this was in the 80s, am I correct? So in the 80s when you arrived, what encouraged you and what discouraged you? You just n named some of them, um, but what, what were the other things? Because you went in and said, oh, I want to actually help plant. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yep. So um, an encouragement was that um, at, at school, I never shone at languages. Uh, we had to have language to be effective in Niger and after two months going into the communities, ad admittedly the language was still pretty butchered, but when the people said, Tony, you speak Hausa, the local language, you speak Hausa as good as the donkeys in Kano City. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it mightn't sound very complimentary, but it really was a compliment. So, <laughs> so we felt we were making progress. Um, discouragements. You know, in, in my mind, there are all these problems, uh, displacement, hunger, sometimes conflict over scarcity of resources, over hunger. In, in my mind, the root cause of many of these problems was deforestation. So the solution should be really, really simple. We've got to get trees back in the ground as quickly as possible. And I, I threw myself into that work, heart and soul. I read all the manuals. I consulted any experts passing through. We tried different ideas. Nothing worked in a sustainable or economically viable way. And maybe 80% of the trees died. And to add insult to injury, the very people whom we'd come to help called me the crazy white farmer. Who in their right mind would dedicate valuable farmland to trees of all things? It didn't make sense. Was there a nickname they gave you in Horsa for the crazy white farmer? No, Mahalka, it's a little bit hard to say, but Mahalka Manoma, the, the mad white farmer. Mahalka um, there was a moment, though. In the Bible, there's this, there's this great story about Moses encountering God and, a, and his voice in a burning bush. There came a time, um, at, through desperation, um, where you actually were out there planting and there was something like this desperate plea and cry of saying, God, you're going to have to do something here. And then you stumbled on something. Could you recount that, that moment? Because it's very vivid. It was, yep. Certainly. And, and that was a big turning point in our time there. Um, and I, I really was at a low. I tried so hard to, to uh, get trees back into the landscape through tree planting. People rejected the idea. wasn't going anywhere fast. And it would have been quite easy to give up <laughs> and, and go back home. One day I was actually delivering a load of trees to the villagers. And I stopped the vehicle. The, the tracks there are very sandy. So stopped the vehicle to reduce the air pressure. That prevents you from getting bogged. And looking in every direction, north, south, east, west, barely a tree in sight and the cogs are turning over. How many million dollars would you need? How many decades? How many hundred staff? And I, I knew full well that using these methods of tree planting weren't going to make a dent on that landscape. But I, I remembered that little boy's prayer, please use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. And I, I believe God doesn't make mistakes. He must have called us here for a purpose. So I, I, I said that prayer, forgive us for destroying the gift of your creation. And as a consequence of that, people are suffering. They're, they're hungry, they're poor, they're fearful what to, to, for what tomorrow might bring. But I reminded God, you love us. 
Show us what to do. Help us. Open our eyes. And it's astounding. To this day, uh, I'd been on that track two and a half years, nearly every week. Eyes wide open, but totally blind to what had been there all along. And I I don't know why it took so long. I think God needed to show me, (laughs) teach me lots of lessons to get to that point. But this bush in the distance caught my attention and I, I walked over to take a closer look. As soon as you see the shape of any of the leaf of any plant, for, for most plants, it's like a signature. It tells you exactly what that plant is, what species. And, and so immediately, that's not a bush, it's not a weed, that's a tree. And sure enough, I bent over, brushed away some of the sand, there's a stump under there. And I had this vision of this vast underground forest. Because in my time in Niger, that was just two and a half years, but I'd crisscrossed the countryside. There are actually millions of these bushes. And, and so in, in that moment, everything changed. And I realised I'm not fighting the Sahara. It's not a question of multiple millions of dollars. Everything is literally at my feet. And this is the, um, the this is Filiostigma reticulatum. Is that a good specimen right there? That's a wonderful specimen. So the, the, it's easy to say the local name, Caligo. Yeah. Caligo or camel's foot? Camel's foot. And that's the distinctive leaf. When, when a camel puts its, its weight on its foot, it spreads out. And it's, it's exactly that shape. So then tell this, this revelation, this moment, this epiphany of change, and then what it was to develop is FMNR. So just in short then, what is FMNR? So farmer-managed natural regeneration... And in in many, many landscapes across the world that were forested uh, in prior years, the remnants are still there but underground. Very often living tree stumps with this ability to re-sprout, sometimes even bits of root and often seed. Can I do a demo? Yeah, yeah, please. when, When you cut a tree, the natural reaction for most species, and it's certain... Thank you. It's certainly true. It's certainly true for our gum trees. They regrow very very profusely and and so when you cut that tree down you get all these shoots and fmnr involves selecting those trees that you want to regrow and then of the ones you want to regrow there's far too many shoots here eventually if you did nothing eventually one lead might dominate and suppress the others but that could take two decades and we're hungry today we need some results sooner than that so the farmer managed bit, we're going to reduce the competition. We'll cut away the small ones, the weak, the broken, and just leave the strongest. And then we'll prune some of the lower branches and then protection. So what, what's stopping this from growing into a tree by itself? Well, there's regular fires, there's cutting because people don't have electricity or gas. They need that biomass for cooking. Uh, there's ploughing. And, um, and livestock during the dry season. So a little bit of protection and the tree does the rest. So I'll just put my mic down and I'm going to re- reduce the number of stems and prune it. You know, um, as you're doing this, Tony, about five weeks ago we had a lesson on quantum mechanics here and it strikes me that we're also learning about agriculture now and horticulture and so we are becoming a quite diverse community as well. And so um, I can sense that uh, if anyone... Do you, do you get hired out to do this as well? If anyone here had some, some need for some tips, of, um, I wonder if they could chew your ear afterwards as well. 
happy to talk. If it's about trees, yes. <laughs> now, is it true that you really whisper to trees? Because you're also known as the tree whisperer. And do they talk back? Not, not in, uh, not with words that you can hear. Okay. But there's wisdom. There's wisdom in God's creation in the land, in in the plants and the animals, and requires requires listening with your heart. I think I don't hear voices. Okay. <laughs> so I, I've. You're going to have to pretend that the leaves that I just pulled off were lower, la- lower branches. So every, every growing tip is sending a chemical message to the roots saying, feed me. And I've reduced some of those lower branches as well to reduce the confusion and all the energies going into these growing tips. Now, the reason why I left five is people need wood today. And if I only left one, <laughs> tomorrow it might go be, be harvested for fuel wood. But if I leave five, o- over a period of five years, we can successively harvest each one and still have our tree protecting the landscape. That's so true. really, really simple. Yeah. And this is time then too, isn't it? It's trusting in time that these, this will happen. So did the farmers, when they saw this, the, the local farmers in Niger, did they say, that's an awesome idea that you have, Tony, um, we're going to do just that. No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, I guess there's a question of prior, prior trust and relationship. Mm. How, how do you change people's minds about behaviours that are deeply ingrained and inherited from generation to generation? I'd spent time there. By the time we discovered the underground forest, we'd been there two and a half years spending time in the villages, talking to people. When they were sick, we took them to hospital. Some villages didn't have water and we arranged to have wells dug. So there's this trust. And then the, the key is, what, what I've learned is every parent wishes for a better future for their children than the current reality. And, and the current reality was very, very harsh. People really did go hungry. And so I asked the question, if we continue business as usual, destroying the environment. What does the future hold for our children? And you don't have to give an answer to that. They know. And once people are scared enough, in a sense, convicted enough, we can't go on this way, it gives you an opportunity. Would you come on a journey with me? I think this thing will work. Don't do it on your whole farm because people are naturally risk-averse. We'll just experiment on a small corner We'll learn from each other and we'll see where it takes us. So the worst thing I could have done is to shame people, look at what you've done, or to tell people, this is what you've got to do. It doesn't, doesn't work here, certainly doesn't work there, but we go on this journey of mutual learning. That's very good. I think that's how it kind of works with God as well, but that's <laughs> another conversation. However, so there was a tipping point. You had a group of farmers who took a risk with you, but then there was something that happened on a global scale there that actually um, pushed it even harder. So there was a famine that struck in 84, 85. And is it fair to say that that accelerated this um, because you were distributing there as aid as well? Um, In fact, in your book, you write this prayer. Dear Lord God, here I am, a prisoner in my own house, surrounded by a sea of hungry people. What should my attitude be? How can I show compassion? And then you said this, thus the Lord, so you're reading your Bible and you came to this passage, fear not and do not be dismayed at this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's. So in the midst of that suffering and the famine that hit in that time, 
How did you see God at work? And then as a result of that, did people get on board? So, again, this was a very critical point in our time there and um, some, some of the backstory. So I'd seen hunger on television as a child. This was very different. After two and a half years, these were my friends. I'd slept in their huts, yeah. eaten their food and, yeah. and reciprocated. And then 1983, it hardly rained at all. People probably harvested around 10% of their normal crop. And at that time, we didn't have any money to help people. The city that we lived in was a major trading city. There was no grain and we didn't have permission. The, the uh, Premier of the state at that time refused to give us permission. Day after day, people were coming to the mission and sleeping on the ground outside of our place. So the pressure was building up and I had nothing to give them. One morning, I was trying to eat my cereal and lump was forming in my throat, tears were starting to come, and the Bible was randomly opened, Second, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. Fear not and be dis not dismayed, for the battle is not yours but mine, says the Lord. And I didn't know what, I didn't know how, but I knew God was going to do something very, very dramatic. The next week, the premier died. Now, don't blame me. <laughs> but, don't blame me. That was not my prayer. Edit I just that asked little for bit out, Jack. Can you edit that bit out <laughs> on the live stream, please? Thank you. I just, I just prayed for a promotion or a transfer, but I guess he got the big call. <laughs> Over the next six months, Christians around the world gave half a million dollars. Mysteriously, after that guy left, grain became available, and we purchased 1,800 tonnes of grain and helped over 35,000 people, and we engineered a food-for-work program. So, yes, we could have just given food and patted ourselves on the back, but what happens when the next drought comes yeah. and the next one? Yeah. We wanted to build in uh, resilience and, and self-reliance. And so one of the requirements was that for, for uh, every, every hectare, the farmers to re were to regenerate 40 trees. And, and that, I think, uh, acclimatised people to the idea. They, they showed it wasn't so stupid and actually worked and was beneficial. So having picked that up, and I was sitting there with you and, and Liz just before watching the, um, the Hollywood doco, and I said, is that true that that hill that became, it was brown and then it became green, is that true? Did, does that happen? That, that's the Hollywood version. Okay. So, so that clip was actually from Ethiopia, much higher rainfall, but... Uh, tree density increased from less than four trees per hectare to over 40, so it was greener, not quite that green. <laughs> <laughs> so what has been the impact, as you step back now and look at the work of decades now, working with farmers in these regions, what has been the impact? So what, what had been this downward spiral of degradation, poverty and despair has reversed and you've got this wonderful upward spiral restoration relative prosperity and hope. Mm. So there's certainly all the physical benefits, um, more people are able to grow more and different types of crops and livestock because the soil's more fertile, the microclimate's much better for growing stuff. There's certainly that income and food security part. The biggest change that I see is the restoration of hope. And if, if you could put yourself in a parent's shoes what must it be like if you can't feed, clothe or educate your children? It's soul-destroying. And people feel they're a failure, the most basic thing in life. I can't even do that. Then comes this very, very simple thing. 
a solution literally at your feet that empowers you and enables you to create that future that, are, that you want. So the, the physical benefits, you saw them on the film, very, very significant. But to me, the biggest change is this restoration of hope. Mm, I love that scene where they're welcoming you into that village and maybe one of the elder statesmen of the village is holding your hand and leading you through. It just, the, the sense that you have been welcomed and accepted in these communities is profound. And, and you just sense that coming through. Tony, we've been looking at this theme um, throughout this year for us at New Community, um, quietly loud. Sometimes Christians have been, Jesus followers have been loud when they should have been quiet and quiet when they should have been loud. You strike me as being the epitome of the quietly loud in that there you go about quietly doing a very loud thing, a profound thing. So let me ask you this. If there's a younger person here, or maybe even an older person here, and saying, what difference could one person make for God in this world? How would you respond to them? Or even just that sense of it's all hopeless and it's too big. What difference could one person make? What would you say to them? Thank you. Um, that, that verse that I came across at university, just so profound. Just think about, about it. Before you and I were born, before God even created the universe... He had each one of us in mind to, to the extent that he prepared good things for us to do beforehand for us to follow through on. That's powerful. And so, um, yeah, I really, really encourage you to, to pray, not just a, an occasional prayer, not just a half-hearted prayer, but pray. If, if you really want to know what's, what's God got in store for you, what should you do with your life, seek God with all of your heart until he answers that prayer. I think a lot of us have this idea, oh, if I'm obedient to God, he'll send me where I don't want to go and he'll make me do things I don't want to do. Like Niger? Like Niger. Yeah. As a kid, the, of two books I can remember my mum ever buying me, the second one was a book on Africa. I loved everything about Africa and God sent me to Africa. And then what do I like doing? I love plants and I love being with people. I was like a pig in the mud. So don't, don't be fearful. As for, um, is it all too late? Is it all too hard? There's a lovely quote from St. Augustine. And he said, hope has two beautiful daughters. And I've forgotten the quote. <laughs> uh, Ang anger. Joy and mercy, those two? No, an right. Anger. Anger. And I was an angry little boy. Anger at the way things are. Yeah. But the name of the second daughter is Courage. Courage to not leave things the way they are, but to get up and do something about it. And I speak all around the world, and I'm so sad to see young people. They've given up. The adults in our world have ruined the earth. It's too late to change anything. For goodness sake, use the gifts that God's given you and do that thing that he's put in your heart. Hope doesn't fall out of the sky on a few favoured individuals. You make hope happen by your actions. Mm. I know there's someone sitting on the edge of her seat today because she has been someone who's been an advocate for us for mulberry trees in Laos. And so she is feeding off every word you say because there's a kindredness of spirit. And so I wonder if there is something that God might be stirring in you today. Um, Tony, it's true that farming and faith can work together. You're an example of that. A farmer... And faith 
working to do extraordinary things in the world. And, and as I hear and as I've observed your story, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with this sense of the trust that you and Liz have had to follow God in those spaces, but also through building of trust over a long period of time, the powerful influence that that's had. Tony, if there was uh, those of us here today who go, I want to track with you more, what can they do? What's a practical thing? Certainly. So we, we've got very big plans through World Vision. We want to restore one billion hectares of degraded wow. land wow. worldwide. We won't do that alone. We'll do it with and through others. You can follow, uh, follow me, follow World Vision on social media. Uh, you, you can give if the Lord leaves you, leads you that way. Please pray. This story, uh, it, to me, it points to, to God's power to answer prayer in impossible situations. Please pray for the success of this work. Yeah. In fact, why don't I just do that right now and then we're going to thank you for being with us today. Dear God, we just want to thank you for this incredible story and for a couple who decided to say, we're going to follow you, God, wherever you lead us. And the extraordinary outworking of that, the way in which you have taken passions and aligned them in very practical ways to feed people and to change mindsets and to be a giver of hope and a reflection of love. And so we pray for this work that it might grow and grow seeds that will grow strong and deep and wide um, such that the impact will be enormous. Um, That doing of good works that you've prepared beforehand for people to walk in, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Would you put your hands together and thank Tony for being with us this morning. Thanks, mate. It's great.